orphaned as a child in an act of violence, Bruce Wayne swore to avenge his parents' deaths and wage war on crime and injustice. After training his body and mind, Bruce returned to Gotham, but found that while he had the necessary skills, he also needed an edge against the criminal element. One night, a bat crashed through the window of his study, and suddenly Bruce Wayne knew what he must become. Fortress of Baileytude Productions presents... Bailey's Batman Podcast. Greetings, and welcome to the fifth episode of Bailey's Batman Podcast. My name is Michael Bailey, and the purpose of this show is simple. I am reading through my collection of the main Batman comics, and you are coming with me on the ride. As is my dog, Boo, this week, because I have to keep her out of the other side of the house. Quick peek behind the curtain for everybody. Uh, Basically, just in case you hear something that sounds like jingling, or something that sounds like somebody snoring. Because if Boo dozes off, she has a bit of a cold right now, so she's kind of congested and she snores. It's kind of sad, really. Uh, I hope everyone had a nice Halloween this year, which for future people is 2011. And I also hope you enjoyed the Halloween episode from last week. It was a little different from the normal mandate, but I had fun doing it, so I hope you had fun listening to it. This week, we get back to normal and introduce a new writer to the Batman titles. Born on February 23rd, 1948, which for some reason I wrote as 1984, uh, Doug Mensch would become a prolific comic book writer through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Over at Marvel, he is most noted for his runs on The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, The Rampaging Hulk magazine, and his own creation, Moon Knight, in addition to scores of other series for the company. For DC, his work was nearly as diverse, but the bulk of it was spent with the Dark Knight. We are currently heading into a 40-issue stretch each on both Batman and Detective, with Munch in the driver's seat. And comic book years down the road, he would come back to the character on Batman, the series, with a nearly 80-issue run in addition to a bunch of Elseworld specials. Quick aside, he would also write a short-lived Blackhawk ongoing, based on the Howard Chaikin Prestige miniseries that continued into Action Comics Weekly, and I, I rather liked that series. He also wrote Cops, Central Organization of Police Specialists, Fighting Crime in a Future Time. Just had to throw that out there, too. I have read all of the post-crisis, for lack of a better term, material that he wrote for the Batman title. haven't read all the Elseworlds, but I read all of Batman. And I have read some of the issues after Jason donned the Robin costume for the first time in the pre-crisis years. So I am looking forward to going through his run of Batman and Detective as a whole before the crisis. So let's get started. We are beginning this episode with Batman number 360, When Slays the Savage Skull. It was released on March 10th, 1983. The cover price was 60 cents. Cover art by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. The credits for this issue were Doug Mensch writer, Don Newton artist, Marcos and Randall inkers, Ben Oda letterer, Adrian Roy, colorist, and Len Wein, editor. We open on a beat cop named Lou walking past a newsstand and having a short conversation with the owner about the cop killings that have been going on recently. Lou says that he'll be careful, but doesn't really act that way, and just as you would expect, Lou is attacked by a knife-wielding man in a red hoodie and white pants. The attacker yells, For false justice, you die! Even though the attacker gets in a few good licks, the cop is discovered by a passing car. Morning comes, and in the Batcave, Bruce Wayne in his Batman suit sans cape, and Jason Todd are busy working out. Jason thinks they make the perfect team, but Bruce isn't so sure. Jason nearly breaks down about his parents, but Batman tries to ease the young man's sadness. 
Alfred shows up with breakfast, which is interrupted by a call from Jim Gordon, who needs the Batman's help, even if it is the daytime. Bruce explains that the third cop that was stabbed, I'm assuming at this point that Jason and Alfred are up on the cop killings, is alive. And now Batman has to head into town to talk with him. Jason wants to go with Batman, but he tells the young boy that he never said that we would be a team, adding that even though Dick was no younger than Jason when he became Robin, that it was a different time and perhaps a mistake. Alfred tries to make Jason feel better, but it doesn't seem to work. At the hospital, Batman manages to ask the one question the other cops couldn't and gets a crucial piece of evidence regarding what the killer said before the stabbing began. Outside the room, Batman and Gordon compare notes with the Dark Knight believing that they are looking for a criminal with a grudge against cops. Gordon gives Batman a list of all of the cops that served as partners to the three victims. Before leaving, subplot alert... Gordon complains of a headache, and Batman tells him to take care because, you know, he's a cop too. Batman spends the rest of the day interviewing the cops on the list Gordon gave him, which doesn't yield much in the way of results. As night falls, Batman talks with a beat cop named Frankie, who tells him about another name he ought to try. Jack Crane was a former cop that is now... retired. We're, we're going to say retired. Batman thanks him and is on his way. Frankie's relief shows up and they exchange pleasantries. And by pleasantries, I mean they talk about how creepy Batman is before Frankie heads home. As the new cop walks the beat, he is attacked by the dude in the hoodie who yells, Vengeance is mine, saith the skull. As Batman heads to Crane's place, he gets a call from Gordon. Gordon tells him that a note was dropped on his doorstep that reads, Another false pawn of justice dies tonight. And it is signed S.S. Batman wonders if this is a Nazi thing. But all three victims were born after World War II, so they pretty much dispel that quickly. Gordon tells Batman he is going by his office before hanging up the phone. Mayor Hill comes out of his office and makes a crack about Gordon having to rely on Batman. Suddenly, Gordon is hit by a dizzy spell. And instead of suggesting that Gordon see a doctor or get some rest, Hill tells him to pull himself together fast or Hill will be forced to take some rather severe steps. Batman arrives at Crane's place and has a nagging feeling about some of the things Frankie told him about Crane. He knocks on the door, which opens, and quickly Batman realizes that between the words the savage skull will slay being written on the walls and a series of photos also lining the walls, some of which having a knife embedded into them, that, yeah, he's, he's pretty much found the killer. Batman is too stuck on the fact that one of the photos is Jim Gordon to notice the skull entering the room and chucking a knife at him. The knife misses him by inches, and suddenly Batman is face to ugly face with Jack Crane, the savage skull. The skull cries... I am the avenger of miscarried justice and the executioner of those who serve that brand of justice. I'd plan to save you for last, Batman, after all the real cops. Ironic that by finding me and thus proving yourself better than the rest, you've merely speeded your own doom. Batman, true to form, throws a batarang at Skull before tackling him into the next room and punching him in the face. The skull recovers and pins Batman's cape to the wall before running off after Jim Gordon. Batman thinks that Crane wasn't in retirement for age or infirmity, so what the hell is up with him being so ugly and having such a mad on for cops? The Dark Knight rushes to Gordon's place, and by firelight, Gordon tells the tale of Jack Crane. Seems Crane was an eager and ambitious cop. That Gordon never trusted because he was eager and ambitious. A year and a half ago, Crane claimed to have stumbled across a teenager holding a gas can in the doorway of a burning tenement building. Crane chased the youth back into the burning building, where Crane claimed the kid was lying in wait and hit him with a board. Crane shot the kid on reflex, he said, but a portion of the ceiling caved in on him and his scalp and face were badly burned. After his recovery... Crane was brought up on charges and drummed out of the service for excessive force. Crane was bitter and continued to claim it was self-defense despite the fact that no gas can was ever found and the fact that Jim Gordon had a strong reason to believe that the kid was just trying to flee the fire. As they continue to discuss Crane being bitter, the savage skull bursts through the window. 
Gordon collapses, holding his chest, as Batman literally punches Skull out of the window before diving after him. Batman gives chase, but because he hasn't eaten anything all day or gotten any rest, his wits have been dulled slightly, and the Skull attacks from behind with a broken bottle. But hey, this is the Batman, and even though he's a bit slow on the uptake, he manages to disarm the Skull easily. The Skull screams at Batman that he's not a real cop, and that he'll kill the Dark Knight with his bare hands. He lunges in Batman, who invades him easily, which is too bad because the skull goes over the ledge and on his way down into the water, slams his head against a piling with savage force. Gordon arrives with news about the other slain cop and asks what is going on. Batman informs Gordon that his men will have to drag the pier because Crane hit his head on the way down. Subplot alert again! Gordon blinks three times as his own skull swims in vertigo getting into the notes i am not too hot on this cover but it is far from bad we have batman surrounded by three skeletons the cool thing about this cover and it's something that i noticed when scott gardner and i were talking about it on a past episode of tales of the justice society of america the skull in the middle has his head up where the bat uh, man logo is and it looks like the skull fits inside the cowl it's kind of cool it's a neat effect uh but there's just something about the cover i don't like but like i said it is far from bad this was a solid first issue for mensch as a writer all the main players are brought in and we see batman doing batman stuff nothing earth-shaking but enjoyable nonetheless Getting into the specific notes, page two, I like the art here of the skull pouncing on the cop. The cop looks up with that, huh, expression, and the skull is about to stab him. It's very well. The art in this issue is amazing, and you'll hear me say stuff about the art again and again, including on page three, where the art continues to be awesome. It's very moody, the shading is just right, and you just, you don't see what this savage skull looks like. Page four, I like the scene of Bruce and Jason training, but the art on the bottom panel is a little off. Both Bruce and Jason just look kind of wonky, and it's very strange. But this is made up for on page five, where everything looks fantastic. The body language, the expressions on the characters' faces, it's just a great freaking page. Page six, I complained two episodes ago that it seemed like Jason's parents' bodies weren't even cold, and here's Bruce bringing Jason in to the manor. But luckily, Mench is not automatically making Jason the new Robin. In fact, there is doubt cast on whether he will be Robin at all. You know, it's kind of obvious, but still, I like the fact that they're playing it out this way, because it, it makes him becoming Robin seem a little more natural than, oh, your parents are dead, here's the costume, let's go fight crime. Page 8, we get some really solid exposition here. Uh, it's an info dump page, to be sure. You know, Batman and Gordon are giving us, the reader, a lot of information that we need, but it comes off very natural and smooth, and I appreciated that. Also... Gordon doesn't feel too good. He's got a headache. And remember, he's got high blood pressure. Don't know exactly where this is heading, but I'm sure it's heading somewhere. Page 9. Nice montage art here as Batman does all of his interviewing. And Batman looks awesome in the last panel. He's kind of shaded. You see the his symbol, the cape and the cowl. It's just great. Page 11. We got some more moody art here. As the Savage Skull claims another victim. We see a little more of his face. But it's still heavily enshadowed. And I, I really like it. Page 13. Uh, this is the scene where Mayor Hill kind of gets on Gordon for using Batman so much. And Gordon still isn't feeling too good. And as much of a jerk as the mayor is being here. I can't fully blame him for being annoyed that Gordon is using Batman so much. Now I know Hill's a bad guy. So I'm not going to take his side, mainly because he is a bad guy. But, you know, to a, to a mayor that's kind of upstanding, maybe, and a little more on the up and up, I can see where the commissioner of police using a costumed, even if he is sanctioned vigilante, basically, uh, to do his dirty work. I can see him being annoyed at that. That's all I'm going to say on that. Page 14. More great... Don Newton art as Batman starts putting everything together about Crane and the Skull. 
page 16, full reveal of the skull equals sweet. He looks messed up. He's colored yellow, which um, doesn't do much for the, uh, the look of it being burned. But it's still a creepy looking dude with red eyes and this yellow skull and the red hoodie, which is, well, well maybe, maybe Ben Riley read these comics before deciding upon a costume. Page 17, great action page. On the top panel, Batman throws the Batarang. Insert, I'm going to throw a Batarang at him. Joke here. He tackles the skull into the other room, punches him into the face, and as he advances on him, the skull gets another knife and pins Batman to the uh, Batman's cape to the wall and runs out. Just solid. So- Newton had such a great sense of action. He really did. Page 18 on the bottom panel, as Gordon starts telling the story of Jack Crane, he's he's doing it by firelight, and it looks great, but it's, it's kind of funny. It's like, sit down, Batman, and let me tell you a tale. A tale of a cop gone wrong. So, it just made me laugh. Pages 19 and 20, more solid artwork here. We get another montage page of Jack Crane's fall. And on the top of page 20... Gordon makes the uh, the comment he had to intend he had to attend the internal affairs hearings with his head completely swathed in bandages like the invisible man and he does he looks like the invisible man wearing a cop uniform it's kind of cool actually and then we get more firelight lighting at the bottom so I, 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 I know I keep saying it but my god is this art awesome Page 21, more action here as the skull comes into the room through the window. He and Batman are fighting. And on the bo- in the, th- the third panel is Batman literally punching him out of the broken window, followed by the fourth panel of him leaping out. Fantastic. Page 22, I like that Mensch notes that Batman isn't at the top of his game because he hasn't slept all day and he hasn't really eaten. I am a big fan of the more human Batman. I like the Batman that can make mistakes. I like the Batman that gets tired because it's more dramatic when he overcomes whatever he has to overcome like he does in this issue. So I really appreciate that. And I think that continues into uh, Mench's run, uh, the little bit of this run that I've read. It, it seems to really be there. Page 23. Ouch. Crane falls off the... Uh the the pier and it says his skull slams the piling with savage force the sound of a ripe melon striking concrete ouch and more of gordon not feeling well his uh, skull is swimming in vertigo which kind of sucks because he's driving so but yeah really solid issue a uh, fantastic Batman story. If you had to hand somebody like a typical Batman story, this would be one of them. And Mensch had been writing Batman over in World's Finest, and I'm sure he had written the character before. But as far as a getting your feet wet issue, this one was great. All right, in the Bat Signals column this month, we have letters from Charles D. Brown of Brentwood, New York, David Mercury of Toledo, Ohio which is like being nowhere at all, according to John Denver. Dustin Leary, Moorhead City, North Carolina. Kevin T. Brown of Norwich, Illinois, or Illinois. Jeffrey Lowndes of Scranton, PA. Willie Holmes of Chicago, Illinois. Jeffrey Feldstein from Santa Monica, California. And T.M. The Mad Maple from Toronto, Canada. We also get a little coming comics box at the bottom on sale march 17th the brave and the bold number 199 which i will be mentioning very briefly and during the same bat month different bat title section so that brings batman for june 1983 to a close we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with detective comics Mongo, live together in peace. Wait, he said Mongo, didn't he? 
that's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might Beware my power Green Lantern's Light Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. And we are back with Detective Comics, number 527. Avatars of Vengeance is the story title. It was released on March 24th, 1983. The cover price was 60 cents. Yeah, cover price was 60 cents. (laughs) Thought I screwed up there for a minute. Cover art by Gene Day, which will lead to some confusion in... Well, not that you'll hear the confusion in my notes, but it led to some confusion in my notes later on. The credits for this issue... Writer Doug Mensch, artist Dan Day, inker Pablo Marcos, letterer Ben Oda, colorist Adrian Roy, editor Len Wein. The Gotham Museum of Natural History, night. Establishing shot. 
Kurt Langstrom is busy burning the midnight oil as a co-worker gives him a hard time about keeping the long hours he is keeping. His co-worker leaves and Kirk is left alone to think about how great his family is and how the man-bat has really messed up his life. As he reviews the exhibit, Kirk realizes that he hasn't taken his antidote in nearly a week. And suddenly Kirk once more becomes the man-bat. Man-Bat welcomes the change and thinks how everything is Batman's fault, setting the stage for the two to fight once more. In the morning, Batman visits Jim Gordon and gives the commissioner a good scare in the process. Gordon catches Batman up on the search for the Savage Skull, by the way, they couldn't find him, and how Mayor Hill is using the story to get his picture on the front page. Batman leaves and muses on the malaise he has been feeling lately. He has stepped down as chairman of the Wayne Foundation, which should have relieved some of the pressure, but he's still nagged by feeling that he is spreading himself too thin and is verging on the edge. He decides the feeling must be psychological, which is a problem because he can no sooner shut off his feelings about being Batman than he could stop breathing. Batman heads home and agrees to take Jason to the movies that night, which makes the young man extremely happy. In Gotham, Vicki Vale heads to work and gets the message that Bruce has broken another date with her. She isn't surprised and wonders if something new has entered the picture with Bruce Wayne. Gordon and Mayor Hill have a tense meeting where Hill informs Gordon that he will be hiring a new assistant for the commissioner, whether Gordon likes it or not. As Bruce and Jason get ready for their evening out, the Man-Bat heads to the caverns near Wayne Manor where he and Batman last faced each other. Alfred is busy cleaning up when he hears a noise by the grandfather clock that conceals the Bat Cave. He opens the door and finds Man-Bat standing there. Bruce leaps into action as Batman as Alfred is savagely attacked by Man-Bat. Batman leaps from the top of the stairs and tackles Man-Bat and their fight begins. Jason bounds down the stairs as well and tries to help Batman, whom he calls his new father, but Alfred holds him back. Batman does his best to hide that he is Bruce Wayne, but it doesn't work out too well as Man-Bat senses that something is up. Jason kicks Alfred in the shin so he can help Batman. Batman tackles Man-Bat again and they roll down the steps to the Batcave. Lots of bats in that sentence. The Dark Knight gets a solid kick in, but Man-Bat recovers quickly and slams Batman against a wall. He moves in for the kill, but Jason acts quickly and yells that Man-Bat needs to leave his new father alone. Man-Bat puts two and two together and starts ranting that this is the perfect revenge, grabs Jason, and flies away. Batman yells and swears to kill Man-Bat the next time they meet, to be concluded. The cover to this issue is by Gene Day, and I'm going to assume that this has been sitting in a drawer for a while because the artist died in September of 1982, and this came out in March. Might be one of the last things he did. It's a cool cover, though. Has Batman on a gargoyle with lightning striking the gargoyle. Uh, gargoyle looks more like an eagle. Uh, it's, it's kind of a weird looking gargoyle. But the uh, the windows behind him on the buildings are all lit up. And it looks kind of like a crossword puzzle thing. But uh, it says Man Bat is back. Uh, but pretty cool cover. Um, kind of sad too knowing that he passed away not long before this issue came out. And when I was researching... The artist for this issue, I thought it was also by Gene Day, and then it was I discovered it was by Dan Day, and I'm like, oh, oh, okay, that's um, that was a waste of my time. Great. I could find very little on Dan Day. Uh, his style isn't bad, and he fits the mood of the story, so I have no real complaints with this fill-in. Now into the specific notes. Pages 1 and 2. This seems like a very weak way to bring Man-Bat in the story. Uh, with him, you know, we est they establish Kirk Langstrom. And then on the next page, oops, forgot to take my medicine. I'm man bad again. But it does its job and, and it gets the story going. Page three, we have an old school splash page where you have uh, man bat on the left and Batman on the right. The It's not part of the story. It just shows the two characters. And it was kind of cool that they, they went with that, uh, which had been pretty except for Superman, maybe, had been kind of out of practice for quite some time, especially in the Batman books. Pages 4 and 5, another mention of Gordon not feeling or looking well, this time by Batman. I also really liked the internal monologue Batman had uh, about how he's feeling on the edge, that he doesn't know 
uh, if it's psychological or physical, but it has to be psychological because he, he's at the top of his game. He's quit being the head of the Wayne Foundation, and Lucius Fox has uh, stepped into his place. It's just, it, it just establishes a newer reader, and maybe Mensch himself, into the world that Batman is currently living in. Really dig that. Page six, I, I like that Bruce agrees to go to the movies with Jason rather than Vicky. Uh, I, I can make a lot of jokes here, uh, and, and I will kind of start to poke fun at Bruce and Jason's relationship down the road. But for here, you know, it's Jason wanting to spend time with his, you know, his adoptive father. And that makes perfect sense. And I like the fact that Bruce gives up his date with Vicky to go hang out with Jason. It was really cool. Page seven, nice short scene with Vicky Vale. She's staring at a photograph of a exploding bridge. I don't know if that will come into play later, but I wanted to note it now just in case it did. Page eight, I like this scene between Commissioner Gordon and Mayor Hill. One, it's a good tense scene between the two of them. The shading is neat. It's, uh, you know, you see it from different angles, mostly through the window uh, on the bottom. It's like basically from the first panel, which zooms in on the mayor's office, we're in the mayor's office, we're seeing Hill and Gordon once again, then it switches from the other side and pulls out through a window. Also, the way the the page the panels are designed at the top and bottom it looks like a bat so it's it's just really neat to see <laughs> i also like the fact that mensch is making hill just a complete bastard and then, on the bottom he goes now let me see who might make a good candidate for this new position who could best make gordon's life miserable it's just wow you are a jackass page 9 this was funny uh, Jason has a Shang-Chi poster in his room. It's on the bottom panel, which again is shaped like a bat. So uh, I also like the fact that he's trying to make a good impression on Bruce so that Bruce will make him his new partner. I don't know how fixing his cowlick, which is what he's saying on the bottom, and if this cowlick will just uh, cooperate, maybe I'll make a good impression and change his mind about us becoming partners. But still, it's, it's, it's like a kid's way of handling the problem. Um, on the flip side, page 10, Bruce is getting ready. And let's see, what does he say? Now for the over-attire, because he's putting his bat costume on underneath. I've been pretty tough on the kid, and he's still feeling the loss of his parents at the hands of the madman, Croc. Don't want Jason to think he's being rejected by me as well, so maybe I can give him some sort of unspoken message by wearing my best. Bruce, you suck at being a dad. I just want you to know that. The, the, the kid doesn't want you to look good. The kid wants you to make him his partner. So, yeah. Maybe it'll work. Who knows? Uh, page 11, poor Alfred getting attacked and pretty manhandled by uh, by man-bats. Kind of rough, actually. Page 13, solid action page. Uh, he Batman has tackled man-bat and is flying up in the air. He is flung off and has to catch the uh, chandelier, which breaks in the bottom panel. Looks really freaking cool. I also like on this page how Batman is trying to cover up his secret identity. Don't listen to that boy, man, Bat. He simply means that he idolizes me. After uh, Jason says, let me go, Alfred. Batman's like a father to me now. I've got to help him. You suck, Jason. Page 14 and 50, nice two-page spread. This is a great fight where on the top, Alfred is shielding Jason from the remains of the chandelier. Batman hits the ground but rolls into a crouching position only to be tackled by Man-Bat. They roll down the steps, and as Batman's coming down, he grabs onto the giant Joker playing card and kicks Man-Bat right in the face. Awesome. Awesome. Page 16, Jason is great at acrobatics. On the top panel, he flips over the Batmobile and kicks Man-Bat square in the back. He, he, he sucks at maintaining a secret identity. Uh, he says, you can't hurt my new father, as he's flipping over. And this is what gives Man-Bat the idea that since, according to Man-Bat, Batman has done something to his daughter... 
Grabbing his new son will be the perfect revenge. And on the bottom, Batman is pissed off. This is it, man, Bat. You've gone too far. No more will I treat you with kid gloves simply because I feel sorry for you. You've crossed the line, and I'm coming after you with blood in my eyes. Do you hear me, man, Bat? I am going to kill you. Damn. That's uh, that's kind of hardcore. But a good cliffhanger. I mean, Jason's been kidnapped. Man Bat's got some idea that Jason and Batman are connected. So it makes sense that uh, this is how you would leave it. Especially since it's only a 16-page story. Uh, which was a lot easier to synopsize and talk about uh, than Batman 526. But then again, I really liked Batman 526. So I am not going to complain about that. Detective comments, the letters section after the Green Arrow story. We have a little editor's note that says, We've passed this way before, Department. Since last issue, super-length epic squeezed out our beloved Batcave pages again, even though it's now Detective Comments, we're going to do two issues worth of comments in a vain attempt to bring ourselves comparatively back up to date. Will this obviously obvious ploy work? Read on and see. Then I guess this is the first time it was called Detective Comments, since it was originally called the Batcave. Stephen Scott Bo Smith of Barbersville, West Virginia writes in, that is the Bo Smith, the manliest man in comics. The man who did the first comics podcast back in the 80s. He taped himself and sent the cassette out to people. I'd really like to hear that. Uh, but he's also one of my favorite action writers. And he's just a he's just an awesome guy in general. I have emailed him a few times he's emailed me back he's got a great column out there it's just it's neat to see him in his uh letter hack days uh jenna powers from bristol virginia dustin leary from moorhead city north carolina that sounds familiar steven galronski from val Palariso, indiana god i screwed that up pretty bad rick harvey from medford new jersey jeff peckham from manhattan kansas and we got the coming comics with uh, highlighting the Justice League of America number 216 and Wonder Woman number 305. And another statement of ownership, management, and circulation required by 39 USC 3685. And that is it for the main Batman books. We have got a great cliffhanger in terms of Man Bat. Man Bat is not my favorite of Batman's villains. Uh, I don't really consider him too much of a villain, but uh, I like the character just the same. I really like him on Batman the Animated Series as well. So we're going to move right along to Same Bat Month, Different Bat Title, starting off with Justice League of America number 215, The Bigger They Are, which was written by Jerry Conway with art by Don Heck and Romeo Tangal. And we have World's Finest number 292, The Anthrax Hotline, Written by Doug Mensch with art by Jerome Moore and Frank Giacoa. This one started out so well. It really did. I was enjoying it. And then it just took a serious nosedive. And it's just like, wow, this is the same Doug Mensch that wrote the two issues I talked about in this episode that I love so much. So, kind of weird there. I'm still on the search, though. Still on the search for the issue of World's Finest in this era that I really, really like. I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that it happens soon. I, I really do, because uh, I'm tired of complaining about this. Alrighty, folks, we're going to go through a few emails right now, as usual. I don't know. Do you guys want me to name this segment? Do you want me to call it Bat Signals or Detective Comments, or do you want its own name? Write in and let me know at uh, Bailey's Batman Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find the link for that at the, at the homepage, by the way. The first email is from Brian Rosen. It says, first episode, Michael, I listened to a few of the podcasts you take part in, so I was definitely looking forward to hearing episode number one. And I was not disappointed. That's a good thing, Brian. Your personal anecdotes at the beginning used as points of reference are nice to hear, since I'm sure you will have listeners that will identify with whatever you're talking about at the time. I am more of a Superman comic collector than a Batman one, so most of the issue details are new and exciting to me. Overall, it was a great first episode, but I was surprised to hear what I thought to be some of the Batman TV score in the background at the end. I'd rather you sign off with Same Bat Time, Same Bat Podcast instead of See You Next Week. Keep up the good work. Well, Brian, 
Uh, you're hearing it because, except for episode number two, where I completely forgot to do it, I have been using the track Gotham City off of the original uh, Batman television soundtrack. And, um, you know, I thought about the same bat time, same bat podcast. Maybe I'll start doing it this week. Since a listener suggested it, basically, because I was thinking, yeah, is that too cheesy? But apparently, uh, one of you liked it. So that's cool. So at Brian's suggestion, that's how I will sign off. Very good. Got one from TR. Uh, Timothy says, Ages of the Bat Family. Tim writes, Hey again, Mike. I was trying to do some research to settle into the DCNU, and I was a bit befuddled by the de-aging of many of the Batman-related characters. I found several sources putting them in this general age range and was wondering if you agreed or disagreed. These stats are from pre-launch, obviously, and I was wondering if you think they're correct for pre-launch and what they would be now for post-relaunch. Damien, Mumbo Grumble, is now stated to be 10 years old. Tim Drake is now pushing 17. Cassandra is about 17 as well. Stephanie is 19. Jason is around his early 30s, probably 22. Dick Grayson is around 26 to 27. Babs is around 30. Gordon is in his mid-50s. Alfred, I think, is around mid-60s, so Bruce would be in his mid-40s. He and Talia would have conceived Damien when he was in his 30s. Dick was around 16 and Babs was early 20s, but that seems actually to line up with those Denny O'Neill stories of the 70s. I've been trying to be optimistic about the DCNU, but that's kind of hard to do now that Babs is, ba- now that Babs is back in college. I have no problem with her walking, even though I think she's moved past being Batgirl. Jim is now red-haired and looks like Gary Oldman. But that's but what really pushes my buttons is the big issue I have is that Alfred seems to be a hologram in Detective Comics. It's literally like they ripped off what they did with Jarvis in the Iron Man film, and Alfred Pennyworth deserves so much more than that, as he is the glue that holds them together. I don't want to get off on a rant, so I'll just ask if you agree with those ages pre-DCNU, and what would you think they are now after this don't call it a reboot? Timothy. P.S. Nothing really to do with Batman, but I know that you, like me, are a bit miffed that Martian Manhunter seemed to not be in the Justice League, and nothing against the character replaced with Cyborg. Picked up Stormwatch number one, and it's been revealed he is still in the Magnificent Seven and is a member of the League but has taken a somewhat backseat due to planned storylines. Okay, I'll deal with that. Uh, the ages, except for Bruce, I'll go with. I um, I always thought that Bruce was probably around 22 or 23 when he became Batman. So I would say he's probably in his mid-30s right now, which means he could have conceived Damien at around 25 or so, so maybe he's 35. The ages of these characters are so funky, and I really don't want to take up too much time uh, doing what will probably sound like complaining, because I have certain issues with how they're handling Batman in this new revamp. Uh, I know that the Bat books were successful, so successful that they kept adding Bat titles. Uh, I have not read a whole lot of what had been going on in Batman after Morrison took took over. I managed to pick up those cheap. I have not read them yet. But it seems to me, and I think I've said this in other podcasts that I'm on, it would be better to just start everything over from square one. Ground zero. Build it up. Yes, it eliminates Tim. It eliminates Cassandra, it eliminates Stephanie, Jason, and Damien, who I don't really care for anyways. But at the same time, if DC was serious about starting new and not having any baggage for new readers to deal with, then starting at ground zero is the best way to do that. And I would also argue that Tim Drake hasn't been Tim Drake in years. So losing him now really wouldn't hurt me all that bad. But I think, uh, except for Bruce, you're you're probably in, in, in a good age range right there. Um, Babs would be probably around 30 or so. Maybe a little younger. But that works. Uh, really good email, though, Timothy. I, I, appreciate your, I appreciate you writing in. I really do. And Boo appreciates you writing in, too, if you can hear her. We have a, another email. This one from Davis Zamora, i.e. the Iron Patriot of the Spider-Man Crawl Space. It says, Hey Mike! 
You can't imagine how excited I was when I found out about the show. The wait for the first episode of Bailey's Batman podcast was unbearable, and at last it's here. Since you discussed your history as a Batman, I'll share mine. First time I could remember seeing Batman was when I was six. My parents got me a VHS of Batman Returns. I couldn't handle it at that age. I guess children really don't like pale, creepy, nose-chomping bird men and insane, though hella sexy women in skin-tight outfits. I was terrified by it, so my parents got me the VHS of Batman Forever, which I was able to watch because of the bright colors. But I would look some other way when Two-Face was on the screen. Batman and Robin, I don't have as clear memories of, which should tell you something, and my parents didn't allow me to watch the 89 film since they knew I was scared of clowns. Anyway, in 2008, Dark Knight Iron Man got me wanting to read comics. So the comics I got were Batman, Iron Man, and Spider-Man centric. Up until recently, he was my second to Spidey as my favorite hero, but right now I'm tired of grim and gritty characters, so my second favorite is, and he spells it like Bibbo would say it, is Superman. The Joker is still my second favorite comic book character of all time. Now that I'm done with that, I have a few questions. Is Mad Love going to be covered on the show? I know it'll take you a decade and a half to get there, but I wanted to know if my favorite Batman story will ever be discussed. When will you start having guest hosts? On a random note, do you ever get thrown for a loop when someone mentions you on a podcast, or are you just used to it by now? Anyway, great first episode. Hope you can keep it up. Davis Samora from the Philippines. So, let's take these questions in order. Is Mad Love going to be covered on the show? At this point, I don't know. That is so far off that I, I haven't even thought about it. But I may, since you've asked about it. Uh, will you start having guest hosts? Uh, yes, eventually, down the road. I know when the first one's coming, and I know who it's going to be. On a random note, do you ever get thrown for a loop when someone mentions you on a podcast? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. Um, <laughs> I hear my name pop up on other podcasts, and I'm like, ooh, I got mentioned. And feel a little uncomfortable, because despite how it may sound on the show, I, I am very uncomfortable dealing with the public. So, anyway, it may sound weird, but I, I, I don't like attention, um, which is odd for somebody who does so much stuff dealing with the public in terms of not only my work, but also in producing these podcasts or taking part in them. So, but yeah, I still get a kick out of it. I'm not, I hope I never get used to it. I really don't. And our final email which is titled Episode 1, March 1983, is from Brad L. Woodridge from Barry, Texas. He says, Hey, Michael, just wanted to drop a line and congratulate you on your newest podcast. I first heard the trailer during an episode of From Crisis to Crisis and just smiled during my long commute to work. I've been looking for a good Batman podcast, and since I follow nearly all of the other ones you host or co-host, I couldn't wait for Bailey's Batman podcast. Great first episode. I loved hearing the beginnings of your love of the character. Your story parallels mine somewhat, and my first exposure to the character was on reruns of the old 60s TV series and his regular role on every incarnation of the Super Friends. I first picked up a comic book at a tiny store inside a flea market outside of Springtown, Texas. It was Son of the Demon. Seeing this interpretation of the character really blew me away. This was also the first time I saw Spider-Man in his black costume, and that floored the eight-year-old me even more. My love of Batman peaked with 1989's Batmania, and for a while, my he overtook Superman as my favorite comic book character. That didn't last, but Batman's always been a close second with me. The two issues you covered in the first episodes were one I was not familiar with, but sound really interesting. I'm looking forward to learn about these issues from the early 1980s. My first Batman comic book was batman 368 which i think was jason's first appearance in the robin costume and which i look forward to you covering on the show i don't mind you not covering the green arrow backup stories in detective and i'd be interested in you covering batman and the outsiders but if you didn't want that but if you didn't that would be okay with me i actually kind of prefer the more streamlined format with just the two books well two for now keep up the great work all the best brad would uh Wooldridge. Did I say that right the first time? Brad, if I, mis- uh, if I uh, mispronounced your name, I'm really sorry. I, uh, <laughs> I really don't mean to do that, and it keeps happening again and again, because names are hard. So, yeah, I just said that. <laughs> 
Anyways, thanks to everybody that's written in. I got about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight more to go through. Always looking for more. You can reach the show at Bailey's Batman Podcast at gmail.com. I have not heard much in the way on feedback of the Halloween episode, so I'm kind of interested in how y'all feel about that. Next time, we dive into July 1983 with Batman number 361. Detective Comics number 528, which looks like it's the return of the Savage Skull, if I'm correct. I will be reading World's Finest number 293. Hopefully it's good. And I will be covering at least part of the Brave and the Bold number 200, which uh, boasts that it is teaming up Batman and Batman, meaning the Earth-1 Batman and the Earth-2 Batman. But I will definitely be covering the 16-page premiere story starring a sensational new super team, Batman and the Outsiders. As always, I thank you for listening, and come back next time. Same bat time, same bat podcast. You have been listening to Bailey's Batman Podcast, hosted by me, Michael Bailey. Batman and other characters discussed in this show, as well as any music I use, are copyright their respective copyright and license holders. No infringement is intended, and I make no money for the production of this podcast. The interwebs home for the show can be found at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. There, you can find the show notes, the RSS feed, the iTunes link, and a link for the email address, which is baileysbatmanpodcast at gmail.com. There are also who's who entries, links to the other blogs that I write, and podcasts that I either host, co-host, or take part in, as well as links to several other great Batman sites and podcasts as well. The opening and closing theme is Gotham Symphony, arranged by Ominous Voice, based on themes by Danny Elfman, Shirley Walker, and Hans Zimmer. Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Thank you for listening and come back every Tuesday for another episode of Bailey's Batman Podcast, a Fortress of Bailey Tune production. Bailey's Batman Podcast.